what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, how's it going? Going pretty good, Neil. This is our history podcast. It's nothing like the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? This is Oh Brother, When Art Thou? But David, the movie rights for this are still available if anyone wants to buy us out. Just throw large amounts of cash at us. We're mercenary. We can be bought. All right. On that note, I guess we should give them something to buy. Let's do a podcast, David. So that question I was just talking about, Oh Brother, When Art Thou? Neil, it's the 9th of December, 1854. And across Victorian London, as men rise from their beds and open the newspaper, they find, printed in a place of honor, the latest from the poet laureate himself, Alfred Lord Tennyson. And they thrill to his immortal words about a bunch of British soldiers getting slaughtered, which is sort of an odd thing to write a poem about. All right, David, you might have to explain some of this for our younger audience. What is a newspaper? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Of course, we all know what a newspaper is. But take us back to this December morning in London, David. What is Lord Tennyson writing about and why are people so excited to read it? So this is the very famous poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. And Tennyson is writing about the war, the war that was on at the time. That's why it's so exciting to the readership of the times that there is something that's so on point, so relevant to their current events. Is that different, David, for a poet to be writing about current events well Tennyson is the poet laureate part of his job is to write about things that are important to the British government but certainly it's not something that at this point is very usual it's not all that frequent that you get such a prominent place in the newspaper go into a poem at all and one that's about, you know, something that only happened six weeks ago is very unusual and surprising. Yeah, it seems like a pretty good turnaround there for a poet. He didn't spend a lot of time ruminating on this one. So, David, tell us about the poem. Well, the poem itself, of course, is a classic for a reason. It's a beautiful, metrical, so on and so forth. But perhaps more importantly, it expresses the mood of the Victorian public in 1854. It's patriotic, it speaks to people in that sense, but it's also critical. He is criticizing the conduct of the war fairly directly by talking about how the higher-ups have blundered and the very soldiers whose heroism he is celebrating are dying because of it. And that was not a unique opinion for him to hold in Victorian England 
with the Crimean War not necessarily going so great from the perspective of the average man on the street. So what would the average man on the street, David, know about the war going on quite a ways away in the Crimea? Well, this was the first properly newspaper-covered war. The 1850s, the important new technological development of the 1850s was the telegraph, long-distance electronic communications. And that means that mere days after the events have occurred in the Crimea, the headlines from the war correspondence can be printed in the newspapers of England. And the newspapers are thrilled to take advantage of this opportunity to get such great copy. And to get these stories, they have their best correspondents out there, guys like William Russell, who is famous as a war correspondent, out there getting the story, but also getting it back to London with such a quick turnaround time of hours sometimes. And the British Army has not yet developed any strategy for media relations because up till now they've never had to. I feel like this is something that always catches armies off guard, David, with the new advent of any new medium for the news. It takes the army a longer time to adapt and learn how to present themselves better for that particular medium. Certainly, it's always a challenge for any organization when there's a new news medium scrutinizing you. And the army has the particular problem, of course, that some of their concerns about what's being released may actually be valid. They have very real security concerns surrounding information in wartime, but the public also has a reasonable desire and right to know what's going on. In point of fact, the Crimean War is the war that will give rise to the famous quote attributed to the Tsar, although it may be made up, but nonetheless a famous and excellent quote. I have no need of spies. I have the times. So David, how is this going to affect the war itself? The fact that people are reading about it in the paper, they're getting these reports much quicker. Does this actually have an impact on the battlefield? Not dramatically on the battlefield. The generals themselves are typically fairly conservative. They're not getting the kind of closed feedback loop letting them know what's going on as quickly as perhaps other more technologically savvy people are. So they're not feeling a need particularly to present themselves to the media. But once you get off of the battlefield and get to, for example, the hospitals, the Crimean War's hospitals, of course, famously were incredibly poorly run, which becomes a scandal after William Russell for the Times again covers in an article how troops are dying after minor wounds because the hospital system can't take care of them, which in turn will lead to Florence Nightingale going out from England with volunteer nurses to try and improve the hospital system 
and then coming into conflict with Mary Seacole, the other famous nurse of the Crimean War, who, as a poor black woman rather than a rich white woman, has perhaps a different perspective of how the hospital should be run. And all of this is to say that very short news reports, even if they don't necessarily have an effect on the battlefield itself, can have a big impact on the lived experience of soldiers in theater. So David, if we're seeing these changes all around the battlefield, the improvements in uh, healthcare for the soldiers because of the improved communications and the newspapers, but we're not seeing the changes on the battlefield, what is actually happening on the battlefield? Well, on the battlefield, again, the Crimean War is a war that's being defined by new technologies. It's a new war from the perspective of the people who are fighting it. Even if today the fact that they introduced rifles onto the battlefield in large numbers, a first for the British Army, may not sound like it's a big technological breakthrough, at the time, it dramatically changes how the troops can fight, and that, of course, defines the strategy, the tactics, everything about how the battles are fought. But at the same time, as we know from the poem that we started off the podcast with, older technologies have not been given up. The British, and indeed every army in the war, are still fighting with cavalry as a key important arm in their battle plans, and that creates almost a tension between the new and modernizing infantry and the older, more traditionally reliant on courage cavalry branch. So is technology, David, starting to make cavalry irrelevant or at least outdated? Well, it's starting to change how cavalry can operate. Certainly, there's still a role for cavalry. At the same battle that saw the famous Charge of the Light Brigade go wrong and take horrific casualties, the Battle of Balaclava, there's also what's sometimes referred to as the Charge of the Heavy Brigade, it's not much of a charge, more of a canter, really, but it's a careful maneuver by the British heavy cavalry to outmaneuver the Russian heavy cavalry. And it seems to represent the future of what cavalry can actually do on a 1850s kind of battlefield. They can fight with other cavalry, they can scout. And in the very best of circumstances, they can pursue enemy troops who are already beaten. But the old tradition of just pulling out your sword and charging straight at the enemy to break them is no longer really a valid strategy for cavalry in 1854. So gone are the days of gallantry and courage in the cavalry ranks outdone by technology david it catches up to all sorts of different fields first cavalry 
eventually it's going to come for newspapers too, as we alluded to at the beginning of the podcast. So David, what else can we learn from the Crimean War and from this changing technology and Lord Tennyson's poetry? Well, one of the big things that we can learn from the Charge of the Light Brigade is, first off, the importance of the poetry. I started off this podcast talking about the poem rather than the charge itself, because in many ways, it's how people have come to remember the Charge of the Light Brigade, how it has come to symbolize military incompetence that has resonated down the ages where the actual charge itself was a short duration rather small action in a war that's been mostly forgotten but another thing we can learn comes from the charge itself and it comes from how the mistake happened so take us back david and tell us about the actual charge of the light brigade What was it for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the Crimean War? What was going on and and what happened? We're in the middle of the Battle of Balaclava. The British, their French and Turkish allies have been besieging the Russian port of Sevastopol in service of their grand strategy. And the Russians want to stop them from doing that. So they're trying to attack through the British lines in order to open up a hole, basically, through the British lines that they can resupply the port through. So at the start of the battle, the Russians overran the Turkish positions, which were the most distant from Balaclava, the edge of the Allied battle line, and started advancing, and the British counterattacked. And the counterattack went pretty well. The heavy brigade, working for the British cavalry, beat the Russian cavalry. And the British infantry, with their new modern rifles, beat the Russian infantry with their old, obsolete muskets. And now, standing on top of the hill where he's directing the battle, the overall British commander in charge of the entire British army fighting here, Lord Raglan, decides that he wants the Light Brigade to go and prevent the Russians, who are retreating at this point, from taking the Turkish guns that got overrun at the start of the battle with them when they leave. So he's trying to stop the Russians from looting on their way out, even after they've been beaten. Exactly. And he sends that order down to Lord Lucan, who is his cavalry commander, commanding both brigades, the Heavy Brigade and the Light Brigade. The Heavy Brigade is exhausted because they've just fought all the Russian cavalry, so they're clearly not going to be doing this. So Lord Lucan orders one of his officers, a Captain Nolan, to take this order and go to Lord Cardigan, who commands the Light Brigade, and tell him what he wants to happen. Have him charge the Turkish guns and prevent the Russians from taking them. David, I'm not sure if I can keep track of all these various British officers, but you had to know there was going to be a Lord Cardigan in there 
somewhere. There was going to be one of these guys was going to be named after a sweater. Other way around, the sweater gets named after Lord Cardigan. Really? Did he wear them? Is that why? It was sort of like uh, the Crimea. People had the association with Russia being cold. He was a famous officer from the war. Just sort of connected. David, who knew cardigans could get cooler? Anyway, the Order and Captain Nolan arrive at Lord Cardigan. Lord Raglan, if you'll remember, was on top of a hill. He could see everything. Lord Cardigan is not. He cannot see the Turkish guns. He can see the Russian guns that the Russians brought with them that are currently being manned by the Russians and fired. He goes, that sounds crazy. You want me to charge at the guns? The guns are going to shoot me. How did nobody realize this? So he turns to Nolan, who's the guy who, in theory, has the information about what the commander wants and goes like, are you sure those are definitely the guns he wants us to go charge? And Nolan dramatically draws his saber, gesticulates wildly, and shouts, There are the enemy, Lord Cardigan. What are you waiting for? Well, it sounds good. Which is not a helpful tactical clarification on the battlefield. Right, he probably should have asked Lucan what was going on. Are you impressed, though, that I remembered who the other British guy was? Very good, very good. There's a lot of these British generals, and only one of them is named for or after or before a sweater. Yes, of the items of clothing which are directly named in relation to things we're talking about, there's really only the cardigan and, of course, the balaclava itself, which is named after the region, not the battle specifically. But it is very confusing to me because every time you mention the battle, I just think of headgear that covers your full face in the winter. Also practical for Russian winters. It is very practical. So Cardigan, not the sweater, the general, thinking that he's following orders, charges at the Russian guns, and that means that his troops, who presumably like their commander, can see that this is crazy, because it is crazy, have to mount up, ride, swords drawn, straight at the Russian guns, which, predictably, open fire on them, and as the cannonballs are ripping through their ranks, they find out that they are riding into a sort of cul-de-sac in the Russian line. It's sort of the guns are a little bit farther back than the rest of the Russian line was, so they're riding in between a crossfire as the Russians on either side open fire and knock more and more of them down off their horses as the charge can't stop now, can't just stop in the middle of all this fire, desperately continues to the guns, fights hand to hand there briefly, and finally when it's clear that there's no possibility of them doing anything useful where the guns are, has to ride all the way back down the valley once again, once again through a crossfire until the few survivors can crawl back up to their original position and sort of stand around and try and figure out what just happened and who screwed up. So they rode David basically into the worst possible situation straight through a crossfire 
up to guns that are firing at them with no hope of success. One of the French generals, who the French were allied with the British at this point, rode up to see what was happening because he could hear the gunfire and saw this, had an excellent quote. He said, C'est magnifique, mais ce n'est pas la guerre. Or to translate, it's magnificent, but it's not war. That's not good when you're supposed to be fighting a war if the general describes it as, quote, not war. Even worse, he added on a little postscript. He said, it's not war. It's madness. And all, David, because they didn't double check which guns they were supposed to be capturing. Well, there's a lot of things that you can certainly criticize. They didn't double check. Nolan apparently didn't know what was going on when he carried his orders, and if he did, he did a very poor job of explaining it to anybody else. We'll never know what Nolan was thinking when he dramatically gesticulated with his sword because he was one of the first to die charging down the valley. So don't blame him for a lack of personal courage anyway. Now, pretty much everybody can be criticized for doing a sloppy job of communicating. But one of the big things that we can learn from the Battle of Balaclava and the Charge of the Light Brigade in particular at every level, from the strategic use of the telegraph to report victories and defeat to London within hours, all the way down to individual guys shouting at each other and pointing with swords on the battlefield, the importance of clear, accurate communication is emphasized over and over again. David, is this a turning point in the war is this does this change things now that they've had this horrifically bad charge and that it becomes immortalized by lord tennyson's poem no no not really battle of balaclava is very minor by crimean war relevance sort of in between the battle of alma and the battle of anchorman which are the two large battles of the sevastopol campaign it's just sort of a russian attack that didn't break through third biggest of the Russian attempts to break through the British lines to relieve Sevastopol. None of their attacks work. Sevastopol eventually falls, and then the Russians negotiate a truce on the actual issues of the war. That'll be a couple of years in the future, but Battle of Balaclava itself, the Russians sort of felt it was a moral victory. They killed a bunch of British cavalry. They didn't achieve their objectives, but, you know, could have been worse. But yet, David, all these years later, it's the charge of the Light Brigade that we remember mostly because of the poem and because of what it symbolized and what it came to be remembered for. Absolutely. There's a lot to the Crimean War as a whole, from the complicated negotiations about access to Christian holy sites in the Holy Land, which are actually relevant to this day. The agreements of 1853, which were negotiated um, as part of the lead up to the Crimean War, actually remain in force 
today as part of the status quo in access to Christian holy sites in the Holy Land. There's the Pacific Campaign, which is pretty minor, but shows how globalized the world was getting that in this minor war there were battles on the other side of the world because the Russians and the British had colonies in the Pacific that fought each other. And then there's the Battle of Bomarsund in the Baltic Sea, which is actually quite important to the war because it was a British demonstration that they could threaten the Russian capital at St. Petersburg if they wanted to. A lot of things which you would think are more important than either Raglan, Lucan, or Cardigan, all of whom will blame each other in the aftermath, screwing up and getting 666 British cavalrymen killed, which isn't great, don't get me wrong. Certainly not if you're one of the 666, but it's not a huge number by the standards of wars at the time. But the charge of the Light Brigade stays with us because of the poem and because, like I said earlier, it represented in many ways the feelings that the people of Victorian Britain got about the Crimean War as a whole. Heroic sacrifice, heroic self-sacrifice on the part of the troops and massive incompetence on the part of the high command. So, David, it goes to show the power of the written word, the power of poetry, the power of art, and how it can, and how it can mean more than really the actual results. Thanks for telling us this story. Always happy to. I hope everyone will give us a follow on social media at When Art Thou. You can email us, ohbrotherwhenartthou at outlook.com. And please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us out. David, we always like to end with a quiz. Are you ready for a quiz? I'm ready for a quiz, Neil. All right, today we're going to go back to school, David. In fact, schools in my area are actually out today. They had a strike between the teachers and the province. They are in the middle of labor negotiations. So students are not at school. So David, we'll go to school in their place today. How's that sound? I suppose we could do that. All right. You don't sound too enthusiastic here. I'll tell you what. We've got five subjects from school and we've got history related questions for each of these subjects. Let's start with math. Which ancient Egyptian unit of measurement was set as the distance between the elbow and the tip of the middle finger? Ancient Egyptian unit of measurement. Yeah, this is our math class today, David. That is an excellent question that I have no answer for. It was the cubit. Ah, very biblical. All right, let's move on to civics class, David. Since the late 1930s, what calendar date has been reserved for the inauguration of the U.S. president? The presidential inauguration. I've always felt that it should be on July 4th. It's on January 20th, David, that the president is inaugurated every four years. Another bell rings. Time for another class. It's phys ed, David. The Pancrechen was an event introduced to the ancient Olympic Games around 648 BC. It combined which sports? Ancient Olympic Games. 
I've got the feeling that it involved wrestling. Oh, you're so close, David. Wrestling and boxing. Basically, at this point, it's just MMA. All right, David, our next class is science. Around 1768 and 1770, Benjamin Franklin and his whaler cousin, Timothy Folger, drew up a map to help ships cross the Atlantic Ocean to North America faster. What does the Franklin-Folger chart depict? Early depiction of the Gulf Current. That's correct. It shows the Gulf Stream. All right, one class left in your day-to-day, and that last class is sex ed, David. Uh Uh-oh. Which food was once traditionally served in Italian brothels? I have no, I repeat, no information at all. I feel like it should be a dessert of some kind. Something like tiramisu. You got it. Bang on, David. I'm a little worried about your knowledge of (laughs) Italian brothels. But at least you're passing sex ed class. Thanks for playing along, David. Always happy to, Neil. We'll leave you, of course, with the words of Lord Alfred Tennyson, the charge of the light brigade. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew, someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why. Theirs but to do and die, into the valley of death rode the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them volleyed and thundered. Stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well, into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell rode the 600. Flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabering the gunners there, charging an army while all the world wondered. Plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke, Cossack and Russian reeled from the saber stroke, shattered and sundered. Then they rode back, but not the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon behind them volleyed and thundered. Stormed at with shot and shell, while horse and hero fell. They that had fought so well came through the jaws of death, back from the mouth of hell, all that was left of them, left of 600. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made. All the world wondered. Honor the charge they made. Honor the light brigade. Noble 600.